I was approached by Caterina Di Fazio to uh, convene this panel um, here. The Agora Europe has been meeting in a number of other cities, and they were looking for a London venue some months ago, and Caterina got in touch and asked whether the Institute of Advanced Studies or UCL would be uh, prepared and willing to host the event here, and we immediately um, jumped at the opportunity together with my colleague Uta Steiger, who's over here, who uh, directs the UCL um, European Institute. Uh, they've been engaged in a series of platforms and panels and research projects around Europe since the moment of Brexit. So in a sense, this conversation participates in an ongoing series of discussions that we've been having across the university, plus a series of publications that have been coming out of your, uh, UCL academics in laws, economics, in political science, and elsewhere, reflecting on this moment and thinking together about what the cataclysmic decision of leaving the EU means uh, for all of us, not only in the academy, but more broadly, um, socially, culturally, politically, and in every sense. Um, so we were, as I say, really delighted to say yes instantly and very grateful to all of you for giving up your time to come and share um, your thoughts with us. Um, Katerina is going to chair and introduce the panel in a minute, uh, but it's very much an inclusive uh, discussion. We're in a big semicircle slash agora. Those of you at the back and can't hear, please do come forward. The acoustics in this room are not very good and they're about eight or ten seats up front where you will be much more able to be included in the discussion than if you're right there um, at the back. So thanks for coming and I really anticipate this with um, eagerness and pleasure. Over to you. So welcome. Uh, this is the fifth Agora we're doing. It is called, the series is called Agora Europe. The entire title would be uh, the Agora on European Political Space. We're trying to uh, suggest that the topic of Europe should be uh, confronted by starting with, um, with the dimension, the political dimension that often is missing. Uh, so as I was saying, this is the fifth one, the first one in the UK. Tomorrow we're going to be in Oxford. I would like to thank Tamar, Uta, and Albert for having helped me organizing this and having uh, host the event. And I would like to thank all of you for, for being here. So in general, the, the way we do this is that uh, it's called a series in the sense that, and a permanent and itinerant agora in the sense that we have many events, uh, both in Europe and elsewhere. We had two events at Colombia. And what we're trying to do is that we have a central theme, which is, of course, Europe, and particularly the political uh, dimension of Europe, but we're also trying to address topics that are particularly close to the, the country that is hosting us. So in this case, it's going to be Brexit and migration. Tomorrow it's going to be uh, Brexit and populism. And the way today is going to work, it's actually the, um, the biggest uh, series of speakers we have today, so there are 12, so thank you all for being here. Uh, it's that we're going to have small sessions of four speakers uh, talking for like a small time. The, way, the reason why it's called an Agora is that you're more than welcome to uh, ask questions, to uh, make critiques and so on. So after each session of four speakers, we're going to open uh, the questions moment. So uh, it's going to be for the discussion. Um, as for Brexit, I really leave it to you to talk about Brexit. I would just like to uh, remember what um, Lee Cooper, who was organizing a wonderful event at the LSE in the last few days, said Brexit should be understood not really as a, or not only as a UK problem, as an English problem, also as a European problem. And the, um, the general aim of this series is to try to, um, to try to give the 
the, the, the idea that all of the major problems we're confronting right now, Brexit is one of them, the way in one is probably migration should be confronted on a European level and not just on a national level. Probably the solutions can be found more on a European level or even transnational level than on a national level. So I leave it to the speakers for now. I might say a few more things about migration. We're gonna to touch the topic of migration. For the first session, uh, it's going to be, um, first of all, Lorenzo Marsili and Dincolo Milanese from European Alternatives that are going to give an introduction uh, about their books, Citizens of Nowhere, and also about transnational uh, perspectives. And then uh, it's going to be Marina Prentilis from the University of East Anglia, and also from Another Europe is Possible. And uh, finally, it's going to be Satman Judges, who joined us today from King's College. So, please. So, hello, everyone, and thanks for um, being here. I'm Nicolo Milanese. Next to me is Lorenzo Marsili. At the end, you'll have a test as to which one is Niccolo and which one's Lorenzo. People usually get it wrong. Um, and, and, and I have to apologize in advance that I'm going to leave early, and hence I've bagged the, uh, uh, the, the job of speaking first. Um, um, and, and since I'm speaking first, I wanted to uh, start with the titles, uh, of which, in a certain sense, we have two titles. The first overarching title is Agora Europe, and I think that it's an extremely good title to be speaking around um, in the UK at the moment, because Brexit, as with many of the other uh, deep problems across Europe at the moment, I think is, amongst other things, uh, but primarily, an intellectual failure. Uh, there's been a great deal of talk in the run-up to the referendum, after the referendum, about all kinds of other reasons um, that Brexit may be a kind of failure, economic reasons, socio-political reasons. But I think that there is a serious intellectual problem um, behind it, and we need to acknowledge our shortcomings, um, that we haven't managed to frame the political in Europe in an appropriate way. And I think, actually, that the whole term of migration and the way that it emerges from the Brexit debate and continues to be used is an indication that we have failed in an intellectual task of conceptualizing Europe appropriately because it, it of course, suggests the moment one says migration that there is an important political distinction between indigenous and migrants um, or citizens and migrants um, and it would seem to me the ideal situation for framing politics in Europe in the contemporary age is one where we don't make this division in the same way. That leads me to the second and, over, and major topic for, for, for today, the second title, Brexit and Migration. I want to draw our attention to some presuppositions we might have when we read this title. Um, the first is, is we may have propositions about who exactly is a migrant, and it's a noticeable thing about the debate in the UK in comparison with debates in some other European countries that Europeans tend to be classed as migrants, um, and many non-UK Europeans in the UK contest this categorization for, for reasons, but which, reasons which also become problematic when they break down forms of solidarity between non-European migrants and European migrants. This is a problematic term. Um, the other presuppositions we might have is we might think that Brexit 
signals something static and migration something moving. Who is moving and who is static? Well, we could think it's the migrants that are moving. Brexit is about people who are static. But of course, the choice in the Brexit referendum, after all, was between leave or remain. Leave is an act of moving. Different kind of movement, of course, uh, to that of migration. But still, in the idea, it's a much more active move than remaining, which is about stay, staying. So I think these questions of who is doing the moving and what kind of moving are we talking about are really important um, to maintain as open questions when we're talking about this subject. The other term in the title, Brexit, we could ask quite what it signifies. Is Brexit a shorthand for an event, referendum result? Is Brexit a shorthand for Brexit Britain? Um, is Brexit a process? And the idea that it might be a shorthand for Brexit Britain also leads me to another phrase that was used in the run-up and since the referendum, I want my country back said, as you all know, on, on question time in advance of the referendum by someone who wanted to leave the European Union and was interpreted as an aggressive stance with regard to migration. But then, as you all also know, used after the referendum by people who wanted to remain in the European Union who said, well, I want my country back from all these people who voted to leave. And are they both talking about the same country? And if they're not, then, well, there's probably a new category of migrants that have emerged. These ontological questions of what is the political community, I think, are really core to the way that we talk about Brexit. And that's my suggestion, that there's a serious intellectual failure behind what we've seen over the past couple of years. And I think to develop on the theme of the intellectual failure, to put it very crudely, we've failed to develop a notion of community um, which really takes account of the forms of interdependence and solidarity which exist in our world. We have remained with uh, this division between community and society. Um, and in, if anything, I think that the term community is increasingly unproblematically deployed as um, a reason why people, for example, have voted for, to leave the European Union was because they want a sense of community or they are rebelling against a loss of community without community really being uh, taken uh, seriously as a, as, as a term that needs to be interrogated. And I would remind everybody of what to me is actually a really crucial move in the history of sociology and, and, and something that's curious to me that people haven't looked into more deeply is quite, quite uh, bluntly put, Durkheim reverses community and society in his move to saying, well, in a 
in a context of division of labor and interdependence, we move from mechanical solidarity to organic solidarity. That is to say that in increasingly differentiated society, there's something, there's a new form of community which is emerges, which is in some sense superior to what was before. It's the opposite polarity than the one that Ferdinand Tonys was talking about. And why can't we develop a European notion of community? After all, it was in the title up until it became the European Union, uh, which can build on this, uh, this idea. I think that the, the, the two other um, remarks I'd want to make before handing over to, uh, to Lorenzo are about um, space and time. I think that the scale of the problem that we identify is something that's really important and we need to bear in mind the different scales. And you drew attention to that, Catherine, in your introduction <coughs> and saying we should frame Brexit as a European problem. I think that Perhaps it's probably not just a European problem. There's a British problem. There's a problem inside the Tory party. There's all of these different scales of the problem, and we should think about their interrelations. And I think that temporality is something that's really crucial, uh, particularly when it relates to this subject, that what a lot of people have said that have identified migration as an issue and a motivation for their vote in the Brexit referendum is they've identified problems of the pace of change. So there's a question about how quickly things are happening, how quickly things are moving around you, um, which is perhaps not in the end too much to do with the individuals themselves, to do with the pace of the movement around you. And I think this question of pace and temporality is deeply a political question. So having posed all of those um, open questions, I'm going to hand over to my friend Lorenzo. Thanks. Good, I always wanted to be a singer, so I like that I have to hold the microphone. Um, <laughs> oh, brilliant. Nice. Um, I guess I'm going to complement it by talking about the economy, given that you've discussed a lot of, uh, of the other issues. Um, and maybe just to gesture very quickly, uh, very concise uh, cursory form to two connected terms, nationalism and neoliberalism. I think there is a certain understanding by now that uh, one of the causes of Brexit was, of course, uh, three decades of neoliberal hegemony and all that that has implied in terms of destruction of communities, so on and so forth. And there is also a certain confusion, uh, not only in, on, in the UK, but uh, increasingly in the continent, as to the uh, potential antidote that nationalism can be to neoliberalism. Uh, So-called Brexit when it comes to the UK, uh, political forces, uh, that are nationalist from a left perspective uh, in, in numerous parts of Europe, including notably in Germany and in France. Um, and so I, I, I briefly want to, 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 to do two things, to say that uh, actually um, neoliberalism is premised on nationalism, uh, and so nationalism is not the exit from neoliberalism, but it's a necessary premise. 
and that what we're witnessing today is a transformation of the neoliberal paradigm that's in crisis through a nationalist rescue of neoliberalism. And that, in fact, the um, at once predatory and symbiotic relation between nationalism and neoliberalism is accelerating today. And that's why our friends from the left who think that nationalism is an answer to neoliberalism are even more misguided today than they used to be in the past. Uh, when it comes to the first thing, uh, it's, it's interesting that, uh, um, and we can only be very brief on this, it's all very complex, but it's interesting, it's interesting to note that the breadth of neoliberal thought, and it's, it's a very rich um, economic, philosophical, social thought, originates in a, in a moment of, of crisis, uh, not too dissimilar to the one that, we are, that, that we're living through today. Uh, it originates in the 1920s, uh, in, in a war-torn Europe, where the, the one world, the world system uh, that was held together by the primacy of the British Empire, which guaranteed uh, open markets defended by the gunboats and the bayonets of the, of the British Army, uh, and a united uh, global economy uh, the world over, so much so that Stefan Zweig in 1916 addresses a European audience uh, decrying the, the collapse of the Tower of Babel, uh, of the perfectly integrated uh, Europe and world system that had preceded 1914, the world of yesterday, as he calls it. Um, that, uh, that integrated world system collapses with World War I. It plunges uh, a renationalization in parts. It plunges uh, a crisis of global governance, we would, we would say today. Um, and it accelerates a very fruitful period of uh, intellectual reflection on how the world ought to be organized uh, following the collapse of the British-run global system. Uh, that is where uh, very many ideas that, that are with us today uh, uh, come from, including some of the blueprints for, for what would then become the United Nations, and it's where neoliberalism emerges as a solution to, to the crisis. And uh, Friedrich von Hayek, who is clearly one of the uh, uh, individuals most associated with neoliberal thinking, together with Rudolf von Mises, etc., etc., admits in a late interview from the 1960s as an old man that the idea uh, of what would come to be the central tenant of neoliberalism came to him when he was a soldier in the Austro-Hungarian army. Uh, and he was reflecting, looking at the defeat, at the upcoming defeat of Austro-Hungary, how to maintain a united economic space in what would probably cease to be a united political space, uh, that of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And so he begins to, to think whether uh, a theory of the two worlds could be held together, whereby a united economic space lives hand in hand with a fragmented political space. Uh, and this is what then Carl Smith would, uh, would come to call the difference between dominium and imperium. The dominium of capital, of the economy, uh, a single, united, homogeneous uh, world economy with its own rules, its own convents, its own treaties, and uh, a fragmented space of imperium, which is of political and hence potentially also democratic uh, control over society, over a bounded uh, political space. And what we've seen with the emergence of, uh, of neoliberalism 50 years later, actually, it's, 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 it's thinking from the 1920s, we jump all the way to the crisis of uh, the Bretton Woods system in the 1970s, and then the emergence of neoliberalism as a global organizing force um, is actually the uh, maintenance and the, uh, in, um, the introduction of this logic of the two worlds, where simultaneously uh, you see the construction of a genuinely uh, homogeneous, united global economy, so-called neoliberal globalization, 
with its institutions, its WTOs, its uh, monetary funds, its treaties, its uh, ISDS, uh, guaranteeing the primacy of capital uh, into, uh, in front of the courts, so on and so forth, and the fragmentation, the continued fragmentation of the political space into national silos that cage democracy within a bordered territory that has very little control over the space of the economy, of dominion, which clearly bypasses its own bordered uh, nature. And so the gap between, uh, to simplify, a global economy and, and a national democracy that we decry and is one of the ideas why taking back control then becomes such a, such a buzzword recently. But that, uh, um, that distinction between the global economy and the, and the national democracy is actually the premise for the system to work in the first place. Uh, it's very clear in the writing of all neoliberal thinkers that uh, the one idea that they hated the most was precisely the construction of a transnational democracy that was able to bridge the gap between these two spaces, that, that of imperium and that of, of dominium, because that would have put back, put back control over the economy at the hands of uh, democracy, which means also at the hands of the lower classes, which means at the hands of social demands and the social transformation of society. And on the contrary, it's by maintaining the arbitrary distinction between national democracies within a homogeneous global system that that system thrives. Uh, and the clearest example of this amongst very many comes precisely from the European Union, where within a common uh, economic system and even currency area for some countries, uh, you have very uh, uh, different national legislations when it comes, for instance, to tax policy. And what that leads to is a tax competition between individual countries to attract capital investment with a beggar-thy-neighbor beggar uh, strategy, whereby uh, Luxembourg and Ireland and the Netherlands transform themselves into tax havens in order to steal some corporate taxation from uh, France or Germany or other countries by giving sweetheart deals to, uh, to corporations, leading to a situation where corporations get uh, richer and richer, inequalities clearly skyrocket, and the overall aggregate resources that are available for social redistribution decrease, because clearly the effective tax rate is reduced for everybody. And what allows that to happen is precisely the combination at the same time of a united economic system and a fragmented political system. If the political system were united, it would take one decision with a two-paragraph legislation to shut down tax havens within the European Union and rein in up to one uh, trillion of tax uh, evaded uh, profits on a yearly basis within the European Union. So uh, I, I, I want to leave that part there, but the message that, that I think it's worth uh, continuing to discuss is that, is that far from representing an exit from neoliberalism, nationalism and the division of, of communities amongst national democracies that are unable to transpass those boundaries are actually, is actually the premise for the neoliberal system in itself. And this dynamic, uh, a second quicker uh, last point, is actually being accelerated today and utilizes the crisis that uh, broke out in 2008 uh, to uh, transform in, in, in an even more predatory fashion this uh, uh, perverse relation between nationalism and neoliberalism. We see it very well, uh, and I think it's important to mention this today, in Brazil, in the victory of, uh, uh, of Bolsonaro. Uh, someone who mixes together uh, extreme nationalism and social conservatism and extreme liberalism and an extreme uh, predatory extractionist free market approach. And what is happening in Brazil is something very similar to what happened in Italy in the 1920s, 
where the upper classes, the white elites of Brazil, have tried with a soft coup that brought Temer to power to regain control over the process of capital accumulation in Brazil, understood that Temer had too little popular, popular support to be a reliable implementer of the interests of the elites, and have turned to the slightly nasty, slightly smelly, not very polite Bolsonaro, who guarantees popular support through the utilization of nationalism as a system of social control, as a system that turns anger away from the economic system and towards the foreigner, the different, the migrant, whoever that may be, the black person, those who live in the favelas, whoever, uh, who utilize nationalism in order to guarantee the perseverance of a staunchly neoliberal system. This is something that you see, in fact, uh, the world over, including within the European Union. You see it in the new Italian government that merges elements of extraordinary nation exclusionary nationalism and of pro-business free market approaches when it comes, for instance, to demand for a flat tax. You see this in the Austrian government, which includes a free market Christian democracy of Sebastian Kurz with a staunchly nationalist, xenophobic, post-fascist uh, party of Sebastian uh, Hofer uh, in a kind of uh, um, xenophobic nationalist government. Um, and so uh, to close uh, also the second part, what I think we have to be careful about uh, whenever we mention uh, taking back control and utilizing the nation and national democracy as a tool against neoliberalism is that in fact precisely this tool, tool of, the tool of nationalism, the tool of community building through exclusion is uh, that which is today being used to inaugurate the new phase of capital accumulation, the new phase of neoliberalism following its crisis that began with 2008. Uh, I close with one provocation, maybe uh, as a solution to all of this, uh, given that the challenge has to be to construct transnational forms of political agency, transnational citizenship, we've discussed that a lot, uh, transnational political action, transnational democracy, practices of transnational democracy, Maybe one place to start, if in the UK uh, there will be a completion of the Brexit process, and who knows, and indeed there will not be elections to the European Parliament in May 2019, maybe uh, we can think of organizing those elections nonetheless as a kind of hacked parallel uh, election uh, stunt, whereby through uh, popular ballots uh, in physical places, in schools, in universities, in town halls, where you have it, maybe also online, we nonetheless elect those 74 MEPs that the United Kingdom should have had so that we build uh, a first group of people who uh, deny Brexit in their very process of being elected and continue as a kind of hybrid political avant-garde that, uh, that, that has a mandate to work to keep Britain firmly within the European political family, even if institutionally it will sit outside of it. Thank you, Lorenzo. Marina. Hi. Um... <clears throat> I think I'm going to speak about Brexit. And because I think the Agora wasn't only about chatting, but with proposal, I'll try to um, finish with some concrete proposals. Now, in relation to what Lorenzo was saying, there was a better one. Sorry to tell you that. I've heard it from Gian Giacomo the other day in an event that we were doing at Another Europe, which he said what he, they were proposing is that left parties will have British candidates which will be elected we were sitting next to him, which will be elected within uh, the European Parliament, uh, being in the elections with other left uh, uh, parties. So in that way, we will keep the progressive left forces of Britain within the Parliament via another route. Now, 
Every discussion of this, I think it has to finish with what type of politics we want at the end. And in Britain, and especially with Brexit, we, we saw an intellectual failure in order to uh, create an environment which will be positive and inclusive. If I think from my experience in Greece, this is a matter of how different elements will come together, different discourses that they will allow people to feel that uh, we have an inclusive society or support an inclusive society. So what I was thinking in terms of, of Greece is in the 90s. The 90s was a lot of migration from Albania, a lot of racism against Albanians in Greece, back then and now. Today we have a much more inclusive discourse, however, in relation to refugees. Of course, there are all sorts of different things that they may have played there. Greeks see themselves as people who were refugees and migrants, and especially with refugees because it's a different situation living a country which has been destroyed by war, possibly because of that they were much more uh, welcoming, let's say. But of course, these are... Um, balances that they are always at the edge. Let's not forget that we have Golden Dawn in Greece, and I think one of the things that Syriza and the people on the ground beyond Syriza have done quite well is to keep this uh, discourse on refugees and migration, because of course refugees was at the forefront of receiving uh, refugees, uh, more inclusive. Now, in Britain, this is not the case, not only of refugees, but of migrants um, generally. And my problem is that even the progressive forces in Britain, they are not that progressive when it comes to migration. So we start, and a lot of these discussions, even within the Labour Party, they have to do, they assume that there will be the end of freedom of movement already, yeah? although we don't have a deal, we don't know uh, where we are going with that. And when they try to discuss the post-Brexit environment, they're reducing everything to a very instrumental economism. What do I mean by that? You have from the right the discourse about uh, the migrants coming here, taking our jobs, we, are all, uh, we all know that. But from the other side as well, the, when they are trying to defend something very unsuccessfully, the discussion is about how the migrants and particular types of migrants will be good for particular sectors of the British economy. So they say, yeah, care workers. Yeah, we want care workers and skilled migrants. Yeah, we want skilled migrants. This is not a progressive discourse to look at people as contributing only because you don't have nurses and you want other European countries to train them and then using them. So even within the progressive forces, the discourse on migration is not uh, very progressive. And then, again, from the same side of things, I I'm talking about the progressive, those that they should take a progressive stance in Britain, I start hearing this term that is used all the time, the illegal migrants. My heart sings when I hear people from the left to talk about illegal migrants. Not only because this is associated with the alt-right discourse of Trump, 
who talks about illegal aliens and so on, but also because in 2013 the Associated Press style book changed the terminology and it insisted that a person cannot be termed illegal and only actions can be illegal. So in Britain we are five years before where the Associated Press style book was in 2013, which is um, ridiculous. Now, what are we going to do with this uh, environment? The idea about freedom of movement, where we are in Britain and when it comes to the discussion about Brexit, is that we should insist and campaign for retaining our rights and trying to extend them as well, not only for migrants, but for all citizens. One good opening will be to discuss within uh, the discourse of migration also refugees, which are very much associated with a foreign policy in Britain, and everybody very comfortably uh, wants to forget. Of course, Brexit legitimized the xenophobic and uh, racist discourse, but we should not give in. So what are my proposals? First, if we were to uh, campaign about something, irrespectively of the outcome, let's campaign to make this term illegal migrants impossible. It shouldn't be used in the media. It shouldn't be used by progressive uh, politicians. We should not allow the legitimization of this term. Then, in terms of a lot of accusations about the role of migrants and how they are undercutting work, there are very concrete uh, proposals that we have worked together with another Europe. The first one is that if we don't want this well, undercutting of uh, jobs, we have to have sector by sector bargaining agreements that they will make sure that they set a minimum standards for pay and conditions for all workers of that sector. The second thing, which I think there has been a progress within um, the European Economic Area, is the why a, a, a review within the uh, European Economic Area of the posted workers directive with the uh, view that there won't uh, be, uh, there won't be undercutting, undi sorry, I need water. <laughs> undercutting principles. Finally, the third thing, concrete proposals, ban foreign only recruitment practices and agencies. They are not good for Britain, they are not good for Europe, they allow the exploitation of uh, migrants, um, migrants as well. And of course, above all, to have strict penalties of employers that they are not fulfilling uh, this criteria. So, on the one hand, we have to remember that the discussion and what creates a progressive discourse, it has to be something that we are still fighting for, and we have to put pressure on those that they want to think themselves as the progressive uh, forces within the society. And the um, illegal migrant terms, they should be banned. This only points for me to Trump and Golden Dawn. I've never heard other people taking this in with so much easiness. And then discuss about rights, workers' rights, totally dismiss the discourse about undercutting and they're taking our jobs and they bring wages down and there are concrete employment proposals for that. Thank you.
Thanks a lot, Marina, and thank you also for having been so brief. Uh, so Satvinder, who is, I believe is going to tell us something about the legal side of it. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, it's uh, both a pleasure and a privilege to be here, uh, particularly among such a august audience. I, I wonder if I may pick up the threads where uh, Nicole left them, which is um, that we've failed to develop the idea of a community, and this has been an intellectual failure. Uh, what is a political uh, community? And uh, what does it mean to say, I want my country back, because uh, both sides are claiming it. Um, and I want to uh, really uh, break my short um, presentation into four parts. The first part being this. Um, we've seen the rise of ethnic nationalism uh, and the anti-immigrant uh, rhetoric. And this is a key feature of, of Brexit, the effect of which has been that um, we have begun to dismantle the categories of <coughs> Um, the entrant, the migrant, um, so that the way in which we classify uh, migrant versus refugee, citizen versus stateless, uh, legal versus illegal, um, is really up for, up for grabs. Uh, and within it also, um, given uh, my emphasis on <laughs> ethnic nationalism, you've got the idea of ethnicity playing a pivotal role. So the, the other is very much now being defined as, as the Muslim uh, migrant. Um, and the question I have for my first stage uh, of the presentation is this. How could, it, how could we have a situation whereby migrants can be connected to ideas of social justice? Can a study of migrants uh, and refugees help us to have a new outlook uh, within the European community of uh, social justice within our, uh, our communities? Are we cognizant of how refugees and migrant moves from a person seeking help to one who must be contained. And uh, the, the refugee is the most heavily surveilled uh, and critiqued and contained individual on, on earth. Um, so that's my, my, my essential question. Why do I ask that question? Well, for, for this reason, uh, my second part of my presentation, uh, Europe's migration crisis is not the result of large numbers of migrants arriving. It's true that uh, everyone in 122 persons on this planet is now a refugee. It's also true that 1.3 million arrived in 2013, but that was really the direct result of the Syrian uh, war. Um, but that upsurge was uh, unique. Um, it's not the reason why we've got Brexit. It's not the reason why we've got this anti-immigrant rhetoric. Uh, public hostility to immigrants actually has been caused by um, the breakdown in trust, uh, social disengagement, and political disaffection. And all of these have arisen exactly a year ago with the financial crisis in 2008. Here we are in 2018 now. And, and two consequences have flowed from this, both of which are terribly worrying, but the second one particularly so. The first is this that we're all familiar with, is the rise of populist forces so that you've had uh, people both from the far left and the far right across the political divide, from um, uh, Pablo Iglesias, um, the um, anti-austerity Podemos party in Spain, to Matteo Salvini, uh, leader of the uh, anti-immigrant league, together with uh, Lugio uh, Mayo uh, uh, of the Five Star Movement. I mean, that's something we're all familiar with. But the second consequence, I think, is much less recognized and is deeply worrying. Uh, you know, it's often said that revolutions, successful revolutions, 
only happen when the elites get in on the act. But otherwise, you know, um, the structure, the power from above is such that it's able to suppress things. And what we're seeing is now, amongst the elite, a flagrant and unashamed attack on the very liberal ideal which was Europe. So that there is a, a clear attack from people like Donald Trump across the Atlantic, but also Viktor Orban, you know, defending a Christian Hungary. I mean, I think the latest I heard was that um, he is against sex discrimination legislation. It's completely against it. You know, here we are in this country, nearly 50 years of um, equal opportunity laws, and um, Viktor Orban is going the other way. And, and what these people are doing are really rejecting the time-honored liberal ideals of tolerance, diversity, and human rights. And that, I think, is, is happening not, not by Anjum Chaudhry or some you know, peripheral, marginalized figure that we can identify. It's actually happening by the very elites in our society. Um, and so what I say is this, that um, widespread public hostility um, is actually shaped by these forces. It's not the immigrants themselves, because they simply become an easy scapegoat. And all the evidence suggests, on the other hand, on the contrary, that those societies where you've got high levels of institutional trust, low levels of corruption, sound economies, and most importantly, a high level of social cohesion, to include immigrants as well, are markedly less anti-immigrant in their sentiments. Uh, in short, dislike of immigrants arises uh, not from the arrival of immigrants, it arises from entirely different uh, factors. So that's my, my, my second point, uh, second um, uh, part of the presentation. The other point I would make is simply this, that um, I'll actually, uh, um, my third point is, is, uh, is this. Uh, how can we, for that reason, given that we're all in it together, and I'd like to suggest that we are all in it, in it together, how can communities mobilize to support immigrants? And I'll come to that in a moment, why we ought to be doing that. How can we build um, on improving uh, community relationships that are already under pressure for reasons that have got nothing to do with migration? Because what it is to do with is uh, pressures caused by other factors, such as labor exploitation, zero-hour contracts, uh, the lack of state support for public services and uh, civic institutions, and the marginalization and scapegoating of um, uh, different uh, 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 groups. Um, if we're able to do this, if we're able to rise to the challenge, then what I suggest we do is find ways of mobilizing solidarity among a wide range of marginalized groups. Now, all these people that, apart from uh, Boris Johnson and uh, uh, the other Etonian, uh, who are elites, but all the others who up and down the country, Stoke and Trent and so on, are anti-immigrant and are voting for Brexit, are marginalized groups. You only need to go up to Stoke and Trent to see this. And so the whole question of really having efforts to facilitate and mobilize a solidarity amongst that group of people that have been left behind, which really came home to us after the financial crisis in, in, in 2008. Now, my last point is this. Uh, the effect of uh, controls 
uh, that have been levied is this, and this is again something that is hardly ever recognized, it's this. Laws that have been meant for the outsider have also now become laws for the insider. You only have to lick, look at Empire Windrush. It continues. I mean, these were the earliest groups of migrants. They came long before the Indians and the Pakistanis and the Bangladeshis and the Africans who were the latest group. These were the original immigrants uh, post-war coming to the 1950s to really firm, uh, service the uh, uh, National Health Service uh, from, from the West Indies. And many of them came as Commonwealth immigrants because the old idea, uh, which you know, every time the law has interfered with this old idea, it's made a mess of it. But the old idea was rather good. That of British subjecthood is the idea that I lived in, my father lived in, which was this, that um, as a colonial living in, in India, for example, I owed my allegiance to the Queen in Parliament, to the mother country. In return, and this is a concept that comes directly out of feudalism, the loyalty, allegiance that the serf of the manor owes to the lord of the manor. In return for my allegiance, the state gives me protection. So that reciprocal arrangement was vitally, vitally important, and this was the idea of British subjecthood, and they came as British subjects, all right. And then, of course, you know, we had the idea of British citizen and the like, and so on and so forth, and the 1971 Act. Um, but what has happened, of course, with this is that these Empire Windrush people came, and they never, you know, remember to register themselves as British citizens. And after 50 years, they've been either deported or asked to go back. And the latest we've heard, of course, as of yesterday, or I think 40 hours ago, was that the British Home Office is asking interpreters who had risked their lives in Afghanistan to provide interpretation services for the British and the Americans, uh, when they want to bring in their wives and children, are being asked for DNA uh, tests, which cost 500 pounds a go, right? Uh, and there's absolutely no legal basis for this, and uh, the Home Secretary, Javed, has had to once again stand up in Parliament and apologize profusely over it. So what's happening is that these controls are moving inwards. And, and the reason they're doing that is this. What is happening is that the real border is actually no longer the physical border. The physical border is much too easy to police. If you have a border between North Korea, South Korea, you can have your armies standing there. The border actually has moved inwards. And so what is happening is that universities where I work in, I am fearful of my students. I'm being asked to take uh, registers of who's attending, who's not, because the Home Office wants to know. And, and on the one hand, I've got my pastoral uh, responsibilities of care to my students. On the other hand, the register I take is sent to central office, and who knows what happens to it, it's got to get reported. Uh, I have to apply for research students. Universities have actually to apply, to really act like supplicants, and to write begging, pleading letters to the Home Office to say, can we have such and such a lecturer? So-and-so is an eminent scientist. The controls have actually moved inwards, all right? And, and, and it, what has happened, therefore, is a climate of anxiety has arisen. Now, I put it to you that in a democracy, the fact that people are fearful matters. It matters enormously, all right? And that's our current state, that we really worry whether we comply with the law every time we take out something or whether we fill in a form and the like. And so immigration controls uh, have become to apply also to citizens, to residents, and to local institutions. And the more this has happened, the more societies had to be transformed in the image of the few who are making these laws. And we uh, learn to live under surveillance. The degree of surveillance presently in the United Kingdom is 
stronger than the absolutist um, states of early uh, uh, modern Europe. Uh, that's how, how, how bad it is. Uh, so, and of course, you know, those people, I mean, it's fine for the college that I work for to hire good lawyers and get uh, their people in. But if you're simply an ordinary citizen, you have to pay hefty fees to lawyers. If you can't do that, then of course you use people smugglers and so on. So we heard earlier about illegal immigration. In fact, it is the effect of the law that creates illegality because it imposes such a high burden on people. So I, I leave it with this question that really we need to wake up to this question of who are we as a community, as a political community, and, and, and what does it mean to actually uh, 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 be part of the European Union and to be a citizen and to, to really uh, uh, not have to answer uh, to these um, uh, highly uh, intrusive laws uh, that are uh, terribly debilitating of, um, of, of what it means to be a citizen. So I shall just end with that. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Okay, we have time for maybe a couple of questions from the audience, if there's any, or also from the speakers. Anyone from the speakers? Yes. Thanks. Uh, there was a lot of talk about um, scale, and I think it's a really important thing. Obviously, a lot of the issues that we're confronting at the moment have to be transnational, think of things like environmentalism, etc. Um, and also, lots of talk about uh, the strength of local communities. Uh, so my question would be, how, how do you sort of devolve power in both directions at the same time? Is that possible? Um, and do you think that would help stem the, the rise of nationalism? Okay, the second question, right behind. Hi. Um, you mentioned that uh, the problems stemming from uh, around the divisiveness of Brexit were more... Uh, socioeconomic than to do with migration. Um, I was just wondering if you would like to expand on that at all and if there's any like literature that, that um, indicates that. Okay, apparently the speakers didn't hear, so if you can repeat it a bit louder, so, a bit closer to the microphone, thanks. Hi, so the last speaker said that um, uh, the, the divisiveness uh, of Brexit is largely rooted in socio-economic issues and that maybe the migration issue is a, is a red herring. Um, I'd just like him to expand a bit on that and maybe talk, uh, I, I think that some of the issues around migration might have been brushed over in his explanation of that, like anything to do with the numbers or the collapse of the Schengen Agreement in 2015. Um, which essentially led to the borders being resurrected in, in, in large parts of Europe, European Union. Okay, thanks. Any more questions? Okay, Sadvinder, do you want to start? Yes, I, I agree that uh, the issue of borders um, and border violence, I mean, in 1990, you had uh, just 15 borders uh, in, in Europe. Uh, in 2016, you've got 70. And, and they, I mean, you know, the, the old border was the border between India and Pakistan, contested territory, contested border, uh, North and South Korea. The new borders are actually designed to keep civilians at bay. 
and they have all the paraphernalia of heavy military presence and surveillance and the like and so on and so forth. And the borders cause a lot of the, the violence. So as a result of people having to cross the borders and get onto dinghy boats and get into the Mediterranean. Uh, yes, that's right. The borders arose after 2015. Um, and, and the migration crisis arose actually uh, uh, around that time uh, for a period of some seven months before the Paris attacks uh, happened. In, in November 2015, I think it was, uh, which led to then the closing of Bodhi and the, the Balkan route was also closed. But on the question of migrants, I mean, the, the you know, I mean, it, it's something. It's very much like the euro and every other policy initiative. The government has got to be able to sell it if it's uh, in if it's beneficial to the community. Uh, no country uh, uh, picks its own fruit. Um, uh, uh, no country uh, in, in Europe actually uh, does the cleaning of the hotels and you get up early in the morning at five o'clock and get out to a London tube station and who do you see? You see a whole bunch of Africans from North Africa and the others getting to central London to work at our universities, clean the toilets and hotels and so on and so forth. I mean, this is a valuable resource which we simply ourselves cannot provide for. And with aging populations, you also need people to come in and to work and to be able to replenish the National Health Service. So this is a case that needs to be made. The reason it's not been made is essentially because of the financial crisis in 2008, which hit those very marginalized communities. And the Labour government at the time didn't do very much about it. And as a result of that, there's been a deliberate and concerted effort to target that very group of people that doesn't vote, that's vulnerable, and, and who you can get away with by, 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 by kicking in the groin. And that's exactly what's happened. And that this has been deliberately manufactured uh, by the powers that be. So, you know, because it's a soft, soft uh, target, that's why. So, so my short answer to you is this, that uh, yes, it's true, no country can take in any number of migrants that wish to come to it. And, and very often when we use refugee law, refugee is a label uh, that we attach to people that we wish to allow to come in. So, you know, young girls fearing FGM in North Africa or women's rights and the like, and homosexuals and so forth. Um, no country can take everyone in. But having said all of that, there is still nonetheless a case to be made for saying that we do need more migrants for burgeoning economies. Vibrant economies do need to have more migrants. Thank you. Lorenzo Nicola, any comment? Um, I think that we run a big danger if we um, start to talk about socioeconomic issues in the United Kingdom or throughout Europe in connection with migration. Because um, I think that, you know, as you said, it's a sort of engineered trap um, that we're in danger of running into. In, in, you'll all remember before the referendum in, in David Cameron came to a deal with the European Council about, and, and eventually the European Commission, about um, if the UK had remained, was to remain in the European Union to be able to impose an emergency break um, on migrants. It was one of the, on, on intra-European migration. Um, and that was one of the reasons where I was quite uncomfortable campaigning for Remain, knowing that in campaigning for Remain, one was also, in a certain sense, campaigning for such an emergency break, campaign for Remain anyway. But, um, so after the, um, referendum results, I made a, a freedom of information request um, to release the documents which the European Commission say that they based their assessment on um, in asserting, as they did, 
that the United Kingdom not only could have an emergency break, but would be justified in applying it because, the Commission said, the United Kingdom had provided evidence that uh, intra-European migration was posing a threat to the stability of public services. I'm unaware of any evidence that suggests that's the case, and so I asked them um, to release this evidence as a matter of good governance. And the European Commission found every kind of excuse um, to not release this information, and finally had to rely on the excuse that it's too politically sensitive. And I think that that tells you everything that you need to know, the sense that the, all of the stuff about economic inequality and has, is, it, it, there's all kinds of real issues there, but they don't have a lot to do <laughs> with um, the migration discussion. The migration discussion is a political issue, which I think at the core of is, and I tried to express that, our inability to articulate what a political community, which is not based on nations, um, should be. And I fear that as, for as long as we are unable to do that, nations will seem a much more plausible uh, response. If there's one saving grace in the United Kingdom situation is that England as a nation doesn't thoroughly work. Uh, it, there's some intellectual incoherence and resistance to the idea of an English nation. Some people are very much in favour of it, but, but there's, there is a kind of cultural resistance to this idea of nationhood, and that gives me some hope that there's a space that can be filled with an alternative idea of community. Of course, the danger is that if it's not nation, it may become empire, even worse. We have a responsibility to try and come up with a new term. To finish the story, though, about uh, my freedom of information request, with it, I went to the European Ombudsman to complain about the fact that the European Commission was refusing to release this information. The European Ombudsman is still investigating, but she used it, my complaint, um, as the basis to force the negotiations between the European Commission and the United Kingdom that are ongoing to be much more transparent than any previous um, negotiations. And I think that this, um, in its small way, shows how if we are politically aware about the traps that are being laid out for us, and we try and turn them against the trap setters, we're able to make some progress towards a more transparent politics. Small progress, but progress nonetheless. It keeps open all the options we have in front of us about uh, changing the outcome of Brexit. Thanks, Nicola. Marina. Uh, just a brief point to uh, your, some of your uh, comments and to connect it with what I was saying. The problem with solidarity is not that it comes uh, magically. You have to, to create the solidarity among the marginalized communities and actually the process is exactly um, the opposite right now. So in the discussion of Brexit and migration, the suggestion that Commonwealth migrants will be welcomed, but let's block the others, already creates division and it has been already taken by the left. And of course, the vagueness of what Brexit meant during the referendum allowed also more communities to differentiate themselves from others. For example, um, it's anecdotal evidence, I haven't done research, but people were saying that within the Polish community, some people were voting Brexit because that for them means that we will stop in Europe 
um, Muslims coming in. So the vagueness of the situation, but also the concrete proposals in terms of different groups of migration, they have already created a lot of divisions and this nobody seems to be very willing to construct the solidarity amongst the marginalized people. Thanks. Lorenzo, anything to add? All fine, okay. So we might move to the second section before I wanted to just add a couple of things. Yesterday we were having a discussion with someone who I might I believe is in the audience and we were saying that the problem of today is that we keep on thinking about the present with um, categories, political categories that belong to, uh, to the modern, the modernity. So that might be one of the problem. And uh, I, I was seeing in both uh, what Nicola says and what Sandpinder says somehow uh, some sort of a, an eternal repetition of the Hobbesian model, right? For which like we ask for protectionist change of obedience on the one hand, and then for you, and I'm, I'm very uh, interested obviously in uh, all the topics, topics of movement related to space. Um, on the one hand, a type of movement which like seems to be static, the one of uh, the leavers, the, the, uh, those who vote for Brexit, and who indeed is also a sort of movement, and on the other hand, the freedom of movement related to the movement of migrations. But really both are based on one single thing that Hobbes would have called impediments of motion, that is to say borders. And about borders, I think that on the one hand, it is absolutely true what you say, so they're kind of coming backwards, they're coming, kind of coming back to the internal institutions and uh, yeah, our political institutions. Uh, on the other hand, we assist to some kind of movement of externalization of European borders, really. Uh, I think we might uh, talk about this um, afterwards. And, uh, and the last thing I wanted to say is that uh, it seems, so we had at Colombia an event on, on migration to one of the speakers, uh, Professor Ed Cuny was saying, was trying to somehow deconstruct the major uh, topics and motivations uh, that we used to uh, somehow um, do the, what I've been calling the welcome speech, or to say the, the speech of those who believe that uh, refugees, uh, refugees are welcome, migra migrants are welcome, and so on. So the three big motivations are the economic one, the humanitarian one, the moral one. He was trying to deconstruct this and to see where the flows are, uh, to try to understand why nationalists can come up with um, with different explanation. And, uh, but I, I do believe that in general, the legal side of it, the legal, legal aspect of it, is really difficult to criticize. That is to say, we, we, what we're doing, especially in Italy right now, um, but also, I mean, in Hungary, et cetera, with, uh, and what Trump is doing in America, with migrants and refugees in general, really goes against somehow the internal and international, like national and international laws that our institu institutions are based on, really. So I think that is one of the uh, main important issues. The second one we're gonna uh, move to talk about this uh, during the second session is the fact that uh, it seems that we somehow forget uh, about the values of that, like, on which the European Union was based, one of which is European solidarity. So for this... To apologize because I have to leave sure. in five minutes yeah. and I won't be there for the second time. Thank you. So for this one, so this for the second session, um, uh, it's going to be Francesco Tava who's going to introduce the topic of European solidarity. He's uh, from the University of the West of England. And Albert Will here from UCL uh, Political Science Department. Uta Seiger, who I thanked before for having helped organize this, also from UCL, the European Institute. And finally, Rosemary Bachelor, Bachelor from uh, Open Democracy. Thank you. Thank you, Kat, for organizing this. Uh, well, you say that uh, solidarity is the topic of my paper. That's a, sort of a spoiler because it will be the end, actually, of my very brief talk. But yeah, you know that. That's, that's a good thing. 
Um, so uh, before actually dealing with solidarity, I just wanted to um, emphasize very briefly uh, the connection between uh, the two main topics of this, uh, of this Agora, which are uh, Brexit and migration. I really think that it's uh, necessary to consider Brexit and migration as two uh, intertwined topics here, and uh, for two main reasons. First of all, uh, migration and the risks of migration, uh, as well as the necessity of uh, limiting or uh, restricting or uh, impeding migration has been uh, one of the main arguments uh, uh, of uh, the pro-Brexit campaign. I guess you all recall uh, um, the UKIP poster that Nigel Farage unveiled in June 2016. The slogan was, uh, a breaking point, the EU has failed us all. And uh, it showed as a long queue of migrants uh, resembling images from the Nazi propaganda of the uh, early 1930s. Back then, even Boris Johnson distanced himself from uh, this poster saying that uh, uh, the real, authentic Brexit message uh, uh, did not, uh, was not represented in uh, that poster. Now, I guess that after two years, uh, almost three actually, we can say that it did actually. That poster was absolutely at the basis of the Brexit uh, narrative and propaganda. Uh, and I think that uh, this is uh, demonstrated by the fact that uh, the migration topic is becoming more and more central in the Brexit uh, debate nowadays uh, concerning uh, the negotiation between the UK and EU. And all the kinds of migrations here are at stake. So the one of uh, Europeans to the UK, of UK people to, the, to Europe, and of, uh, of course, non-Europeans to the UK and to the EU. Now, um, I think that, uh, uh, yeah, so, um, this, uh, the centrality of migration and the way in which uh, Brexiteers uh, handle this delicate issue shows that uh, the Brexit narrative since the very beginning uh, has been systematically anchored on nationalist and racist themes and not merely on economic factors as the many pro-Brexit uh, intellectuals or econ economists are trying to, uh, to emphasize. Uh, the second reason why I think uh, we should uh, consider Brexit and migration as two intertwined concepts is that, uh, and this is something that Katerina said very well in uh, her recent article on open democracy, uh, both these phenomena, Brexit and migration, are essentially European uh, international phenomena. So it's impossible to understand Brexit exclusively as a sort of a British uh, or uh, UK phenomenon any longer. So, and therefore, we need to tackle both these phenomena, both these problems from a European and a, a transnational level as well. Um, I think it's important to pinpoint that Brexit is not a British phenomenon insofar as uh, the same anti-immigrant nationalist mechanisms uh, that uh, are at the very basis of Brexit uh, um, are also nowadays widespread in the whole of Europe. I could make many examples of that, uh, and I'm sure you all know them very well. There is one, actually, which came to my mind recently. I don't know if any of you is familiar with uh, Tomio Okamura. Does anybody know? Yeah, you know who Tomio Okamura is. So, no, nobody else? So, Okamura is this uh, uh, prominent, uh, far-right, uh, Japanese-Czech politician. So, he created, uh, uh, a couple of years ago, this uh, far-right uh, uh, party called the Freedom and Direct Democracy which obtained a historical 10% at the last Czech election in 2017. Uh, Okamura's pet subject has always been this blatant 
extremist opposition to any kind, any sort of migration, and particularly to any welcoming policy towards uh, uh, refugees and uh, asylum seekers. I was reading an interview that he gave in uh, October 2017, a couple of weeks before the Czech elections, and he said that to justify, to comment on his ideas against migration, he said, uh, Quote, if the forest burns, I do not extinguish the fire by taking home the burning trees. Now, uh, from a philosophical point of view, I think from a moral, ethical point of view, I think this is a great example of moral reification. So what Okamura did, uh, probably not consciously, was uh, turning uh, uh, people, uh, people's conditions, values, uh, and interests into something totally manageable, purely material and objective. So there were no more, no longer persons, but uh, simply locks from his point of view. Now, this might seem something quite uh, far from our current uh, political debate, something just uh, characterizing some sort of a weird uh, Eastern European character, but my contention here is that uh, uh, the kind of narrative which uh, underpins uh, the current Brexit mechanism is specifically is precisely the same one that we, that we see here. So the same kind of moral reification is also uh, ongoing in the Brexit campaign. Uh, I'm sure that uh, you all remember what uh, Theresa May said uh, on October the 1st, uh, uh, commenting on uh, uh, the new policy, the new UK policy towards uh, uh, migration after Brexit. So she said that uh, it will be a skill-based system where it is workers' skills that matter, not where they come from. So there's a skill-based new kind of policy. And then she added that uh, uh, what uh, makes a worker high-skilled is merely his or her economic income. She mentioned there's a 50K a year as the fundamental basis for defining uh, a human being as skilled, as actually bearing some kind of uh, a professional or uh, intellectual skill. So that's another example of how verification is uh, at the very center of this kind of Brexit mechanism. And I would say at the basis of this uh, populist extremist mechanism. Now, uh, sadly, and this is also a point that we should consider, EU's reaction to this widespread verification has been an even deeper and harsher verification based on narrow-minded economic measures whose only outcome so far has been reinforcing nationalist and racist factions all around the continent. There is a paradox in today's Europe, I think, and this is also leads me to the main topic that I think we should deal with today. So I think that's the only way to actually stop, to actually bridge the litany of verifications here is reintroducing and remodeling a fundamental concept which is at the very basis of the European uh, uh, concept, the European idea, which is solidarity. So uh, it's not uh, a chance, I think, that uh, everybody tonight mentioned this word, this concept, solidarity, but uh, if you look at uh, European treaties, European uh, public debate, you will see that uh, the word solidarity is absolutely ubiquitous. Everybody mentions and uses the word solidarity. Think of the Lisbon Treaty, think of uh, the main speeches by the most well-known politicians uh, on the European level. And also tonight, of course, that's another example. On the other hand, it's becoming more and more difficult to uh, find, to identify a concrete use of solidarity within uh, European politics. And that's the paradox. So on the one hand, solidarity is ubiquitous, and on the other hand, we don't know how to deal with this concept. How can we possibly handle and concretize this concept? 
And I think that uh, what we should do here, and I think that uh, Europe uh, should consider this as one of the main aims of uh, this kind of uh, discussions, is uh, uh, well enhancing and possibly reintroducing uh, the idea of solidarity in a more concrete, embodied way, and not merely on a purely reified, objective uh, way. So that's, uh, I think, the great challenge that uh, uh, we have nowadays. Um, yeah, so, and uh, how, can that possibly mean? I will conclude just by giving a sort of a possible solution to the problem, but this is really an open question. How can we possibly think of a solidarity concretely and not on the basis of some kind of empty uh, argument or empty uh, academic discourse, right? So I think we need to establish a new model of solidarity here mm -hmm. on the basis of uh, today's challenges. So I would suggest that we need to employ a problem-based approach here insofar as the goal should not be providing further definitions of solidarity. We have plenty of definitions of social, civic, political solidarity. So what we should do is that rather clarifying which concrete problems a functional idea of solidarity should be able to address. And I think that both Marina and Sabinder actually pointed out very well what this concrete use could possibly be, mobilizing solidarity towards inequalities, towards marginalization. So. The point is that trying to define solidarity on the basis of this action and of not of some kind of a mere empty uh, definition which doesn't work any longer. Now, we are seeing concrete example of such embodied solidarity in the ongoing protests that uh, are actually happening against Brexit and also against the emergence of new far-right movements across Europe. I guess uh, it's time uh, to look at this phenomenon and to try to learn something from them. And I think that uh, a discussion here is precisely what can possibly reconnect all these phenomena, all these uh, political actions and discourses and uh, our more, uh, well, theoretical approach. And uh, yeah, how can this possibly be done? Yeah, and it's open to questions. So this is open for debate. And actually, since I'm working on this, I'll be very happy to receive some feedback. So yeah, please uh, help me out. Okay, that's all, thank you. Thank you, Francesco. Albert. Bye, Nicola. Thank you so much. Okay. And bye, Lorenzo. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Christina. Thank you very much for organizing this event and, and for the um, invitation. Um, let me just preface my remarks by saying that I think that migration is one of the biggest challenges to the constitutional democracies of Europe for anybody who takes the idea of an ethic of public responsibility seriously, that is to say, a political ethic in which you seriously think through the consequences uh, of what you're doing. And the clearest example of that, I think which highlights that, is the consequences for Germany and for Angela Merkel of the decision on the 4th of September 2015 to open the borders. Uh, and what I'm going to say in my remarks tries to bring together concerns about the European political space um, and also uh, concerns about Brexit. So let's go back to 2015 uh, when you've got migrants um, trapped in Hungary and Angela Merkel in what I think is one of the most generous political gestures that we've seen in recent decades decides to open, open the borders to provide some sort of dignity and uh, reception to those, to those people. About a million people come in very quickly. And Angela Merkel's phrase in connection with this was, we are sharpened us. We can do this. 
think a lot of people have focused on we can do this. Um, it's worth pausing on who are the we who are supposed to be doing this. Clearly, that remark was primarily addressed to German citizens and the German, German population. But if you think about it, it clearly implied commitments for Europe as well, for the EU, since that was clearly tied to the idea that there should be quotas for other uh, European countries. And it also, had, it also had implications for the particular communities that were going to be the pinch points for the reception of migrants in terms of public services and so on. Now, as I've said already, I think that that was absolutely uh, the right thing to do. I think it was a remarkably uh, noble gesture uh, on the part of Merkel. But you have to think about the broader consequences as well. And I at least draw one implication from that, which is if you're not to create the sort of backlash that we've seen with the rise of the alternative for Deutschland, which is mobilizing around the issue of migration, you have to think very carefully, not only about the principle of what you do, but precisely how you do it. Uh, and that is something that really needs thinking through, and that's one of the reasons why I think that migration is a very difficult issue. Let me just say something about uh, Brexit uh, in that context, because this is also a question about how you do things as well as what you do. Um, what was, I think, a striking feature of the Brexit uh, campaign um, that uh, there was no promise to reduce migration. If you listen very carefully, Brexit campaign never said that they would reduce migration. They said that they would introduce controls on migration. Uh, one of the things that they promised was uh, they would introduce an Australian points system on migration. Um, interesting little news a couple of weeks ago, Australian population has just reached 25 million. Uh, that was projected to be the population in something like 20 to 25 years time. I mean, if you were making a promise to reduce migration, the last instrument you would use is an Australian-style point system. Uh, maybe the right thing to use or not, but that's not what you would do. And I think that the contradiction that was embedded in the pro-Brexit forces is a contradiction I, I don't think it was purely nationalism. I think there was a strain of what you might call Empire, Empire 2.0. This is the rhetoric of global Britain, uh, as well as uh, the rhetoric of I want my uh, country back. Um, and it's abundantly clear um, that those who favoured Brexit on the grounds of global Britain uh, also favoured um, substantial movements of population borders, that's implicit, and anybody will tell you that's implicit in uh, free trade agreements as well. Um, I mean, I understand, I don't know if this is true, and Satvinda may, may know about this, that Priti Patel was actually going around to the Asian community saying, if you keep the Europeans out, you can have many more of your cousins from the Indian subcontinent uh, coming in instead. So there was quite a lot of um, ambiguity uh, in this. And I don't think it's surprising that the and I hesitate to use this word with Chantal on the panel, but insofar as this was populist in, some, in, in one sense of populism, populism is known to appeal to an idea of the heartland of the people. And I think one of the appeals that was going on in that Brexit referendum was an appeal to a certain, among those who wanted to get back to the Britain of the 1950s, 
um, of that there was a heartland of, of Britain which was somehow being lost. Um, I was very impressed by a report about um, Hull, which is in the Financial Times, about people complaining of um, uh, shops selling Polish goods and dealing in, dealing in, in uh, uh, talking in Polish and so on. And you can understand, I know this part of the world a little bit, you can understand if you've grown up in Hull um, and you suddenly see Polish shops selling Polish goods with people talking in Polish, you simply literally do not understand what has been going on around you. What nobody said was that if those shops were not selling Polish goods, they wouldn't be open at all. They would simply be boarded up. Nobody was prepared to say, this is part of the ethics of responsibility, we're not going back to a world of Mr. Brown the baker and Mr. Green the grocer selling in traditional ways in, uh, in the UK. Finally, one remark on Islam and Europe, because uh, I think this has been a sort of, I'm not going to mention this, but I think this, we mustn't forget that a lot of the mobilizing force uh, around European populism is an, is an anti-Islamic force. So the only thing I've got to say on uh, Europe and Islam, really, is that um, you will regard those as incompatible uh, unless you've ever visited um, uh, Granada and the Alhambra Palace, uh, 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 unless you've never done algebra, or unless you've never drunk coffee in a Viennese coffee house. Those are just a few of the cultural traces that we owe to uh, Islam in Europe. And on that, I shall finish. Thank you, Albert Uta. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you very much, Katerina, for um, bringing this to us. You did all the organizing and thinking behind it. We were sort of a vessel, if you like, to um, welcome you here. Um, there's always a bit of um, a danger to be the seventh person speaking on the topic. Um, uh, so. When I thought about what I was going to say, I thought I'd pick out one particular aspect that we might use to explore the topic rather than explain the whole thing, I suppose. Um, and the topic that I would like to look at is the question of trust. Um, it's come up before, um, slightly in an, earlier, in an earlier presentation, but I believe that that is one of the vehicles through which we can discuss bigger questions about what holds our societies together or what doesn't, and also what is what is happening right now in different kinds of levels in society and in our political organization. One could argue that there are two different sides to trust. One would be a vertical one, which is our trust in financial and political institutions, institutions that regulate our social and political space. The other would be um, uh, the horizontal trust, which is the social trust possibly between members of our, of our society. So these two axes obviously intersect, and that's what I want to have a, a little bit of a look at in, in, in the next four to five minutes. So what do we mean by trust? I mean, to some extent, trust um, is an interesting concept. It's a, it's a cognitive presence, if you like. Um, it is future-oriented um, because it describes acts that may not actually have been committed yet, um, but need to be reckoned with in uh, going forward. 
And the German sociologist um, Georg Zimmermann had a very lovely way of describing the question of trust. He said it, it's a hypothesis that bridges the middle ground between knowing, not knowing, and acting. Now, obviously, what we all know is in our current um, situation, this middle ground has expanded vastly uh, in contemporary societies in a globalized world, we are ever more interconnected, we're ever more um, interrelated, virtually at times, but um, the idea that um, some decisions can be taken in absolute isolation have clearly um, evaporated as we've come along. That, of course, has also meant there's been quite an exponential demand uh, for trust, um, a greater need to sort of hang on to things that we can um, use to make sense of, of this complexity. And somebody much cleverer than I uh, called it an essentially a technique for uh, coping with the freedom of our fellow human beings, namely the fact that we don't really understand what they are going to do. We don't really know whether we can trust that. So um, in that context, of we've, we've seen uh, many networks, voluntary organizations and other institutions arise um, that aim effectively to reduce the uncertainties and reduce um, the um, inevitability of um, running up against um, unexpected developments. And some of them were optimistically minded, did think for a while, perhaps, that those institutions might even make the need for social trust itself superfluous because it would be entirely stabilized by um, those kinds of um, institutions which are also um, civil in, in nature often. Others, in contrast, Honora O'Neill, philosopher here, for example, she thought that our demands that these institutions be themselves accountable have made, us, have made matters worse because they've even led us to think about uh, or engender a kind of culture of suspicion because we no longer trust those institutions either. Um, there's a very interesting um, historical lineage to thinking about trust, um, a, a German, uh, again, Sorry about invoking Germans all the time. Sure, I'm very good at it. But um, a, a German historian, Uta Frivert, um, um wrote a very interesting book about the history, of, the intellectual history of trust. And her main point really was that um, as we've moved from a feudal society to a post-enlightenment, enlightenment, post-enlightenment post society, uh, trust acquired a completely different kind of um, association and a very different kind of understanding. Basically, rather than being uh, derived from and legitimated by a trust in God and as some sort of divine power, uh, our uh, political institutions today um, needed the trust of its citizens. It needed the trust uh, that's reciprocal between institutions and those, uh, well, the, those who govern us and, and those who are being governed. governed. In uh, Britain, of course, it was already in the 17th century, John Locke describing um, government as a government of trust. It was a very restricted circle of citizens that was uh, represented in Parliament, of course, but the idea was that that trust was the vinculum uh, societatis, the bond of society, and some of that has stuck with us on the continental sort of post Enlightenment um, uh, uh, development already that this kind of idea of a communion of interests uh, in, in Edmund Burke's work uh, to, that that has arise, uh, arisen is very much sort of based on the idea that um, our political institutions, our parliament, are sort of trustees of, of our society as a whole. Now, interestingly, in that, all, in that whole complex, distrust was already deeply ingrained because uh, other 
in contrast to sort of feudal societies where you really had no choice very much in the matter, um, today's governments depend on the fact that you can actually withdraw your trust. You can express a, a, a no confidence, um, be it in parliament or be it um, at the ballot box. So trust can always be withdrawn at any uh, particular point in time. But the fundamental idea is that there is a relationship between society and, or the electorate and government that effectively depends on the need to gain and to honor trust. So that's on the one hand. The other obviously, obvious axis is, is the horizontal one, which um, is that of uh, the social trust between fellow members of society. Um, the idea is there that social trust is determined by interpersonal relationships from families, social relationships, economic relationships, industrial relationships. And the question is how that trust arises and how we may sustain it, and that's where we enter very uh, difficult waters. Um, some thinkers of the past, including Adam Smith, called this idea that it's one that holds society together a fellow feeling at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, Dewey called it active, citizens, uh, sim active sympathy, sorry. Um, but the whole idea that it arises um, out of the capacity to put oneself into another's place, that we put ourselves into other people's shoes, that we understand each other as part of a society where we all um, recognize each other to such a certain extent. And that it is that sort of sentiment, um, that necessity to bond that somehow stabilizes post-feudal institutions. Um, not everyone subscribed to that notion. I think Immanuel Kant notoriously rejected this as pathological love and very unmanly to boot. But the idea has been around for obviously a very long time. The big question is what um, has happened to both our trust in institutions and our trust in society as things have got more complex. So my position in bringing this to the table today is that Brexit and migration really um, reflect in their conjunction something of a perfect storm, where you had um, a huge distrust emerging that we've obviously not just in this country and the rest of Europe, against national, against transnational, against all kinds of other political establishments. Um, that's obviously where populism takes its point of departure, the idea that elites are inherently corrupt and that therefore a new kind of system needs to arise that directly represents us as, as citizens. And that comes together with um, the issue of migration which does pose challenges to um, societal cohesion um, and it is no good to pretend otherwise. I think we all in this space, for what I can see, would agree that we think that that's, these challenges are surmountable, but um, to negate that they exist doesn't help us very much either. And in fact, there is an interesting question about the way that this topic has created, if you like, on a meta level, a social division, in that um, we find it even very hard to talk to each other. Now, I run an institute which has tried to stimulate debate about Europe for, for a great number of years. Um, but no matter how hard we try, we do find it relatively difficult to attract people who fundamentally disagree with us. I saw one person in the audience who unfortunately left, who has come to our debates often, and he held a very different uh, point of view. That is relatively rare. We do sit in our echo chambers, and I don't think I see anybody here who would say, actually, you know, we've got to um, wall up 
we need to ensure that migration stops, otherwise the um, political fallout um, in the next generations to come will be that I think will be, will be crucial. And just to end with an anecdote, um, uh, a professor at King's ran, um, prior to the referendum, several um, um, sort of um, town halls, if you like, outside of um, London, north and east of England, everywhere. Um, and in one of those discussions where they talked about migration, they talked about the economy, and he made the point that economists consistently argued that migrants, in fact, are very positive for GDP, tend to pay more than they take out, etc. Somebody stood up and said, um, you know what, that's your bloody GDP, not mine. <laughs> and I think unless we recognize the fact that for many people it's, it's our bloody GDP, but not theirs, then we don't really have progress in the forward. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Uta. Uh, Rosemary. Thank you very much. I, I do hope that this is going to follow on from Uta's amazing meditation on trust, um, because I was expecting to participate in the Brexit discussion, and I'm no expert on migration, but I think I've come up with one idea that I can share with you and that I'd like to explore. And it's one that I've been mulling over, actually, since I interviewed Carlos Del Clo, a social movement expert based in Barcelona in 2016. He was talking about the 15M movement and the rise to fame of Ada Cala, the famous mayor of Barcelona, and the role in this of what I shall refer to throughout as PA. If you're wondering what that is, it's P-A-H, and it is the initials of the um, anti-evictions platform um, set up in Barcelona, of which Ada Cala was the spokesperson, and it was on the wave of the success of that extraordinary anti-eviction movement that she became the mayor of, of Barcelona. So this is what Carlos said to me about that organization. The PA are in many ways the best migrant rights organization in Spain because they organize around a common need, housing. And they say, I don't care if you have got documents. If they try and evict you, I'm going to show up at your house to block it. If you will show up at mine when they try to evict us. That's really the key, says Carlos, the success of the Indignados and the situation in Spain right now, this ability to take hopelessness and make it about that vision. It's not the vision of society that they propose out there, but the one that they put into practice, which made the difference. I've been thinking about this notion of a deal across boundaries. Here are the boundaries between migrants and citizens. I'm going to show up at your house if you will show up at mine. And why I think it's such a, a stroke of genius Barcelona is the only place where I've seen demonstrations calling on the government for the right to welcome more migrants, and I don't think that this can be an accident. Carlos went on to say this. 
I do think that the key to the Indignados was how they organized in the midst of the hopelessness dominant in Spain prior to their emergence and pushed developments in a virtuous, subversive, emancipatory direction as opposed to this game of how can we play with xenophobia without being xenophobic, which was going on in the rest of Europe. They said, we have to be protagonists of our own change. We have to break down borders to our, in our own practice. And there were other important borders and boundaries crossed in this little experiment, this anti-infiction movement, as articulated here by a PA activist. She said, without a doubt, the PA's greatest success has been to empower people. These are men and women who at one point were sold on the idea that they were part of a middle class. And they now realize they're part of a much larger majority, which is the working class. Or one day they were just a number in the labor force, and now, thanks to PA, they are activists who not only defend the right to decent housing, but work with activists they have met from other movements to weave the social fabric of their own communities. PA people arrive at those local assemblies looking for a solution to their individual situation, but they quickly realize that through solidarity and civil disobedience, not only can they find solutions to their problems, but also they are part of a community that is capable of large-scale success. And I just want to linger a little bit more, for one more moment more, on this idea and what large-scale success meant for the PAR movement. By 2013, the 15M movement had helped launch 200 PAR groups throughout Spain. And at that point, they had up to 90%, I mean, I don't know what the opinion polls, whether they were any decent, credible opinion polls, but anyway, what we're to this is what the activists themselves said. They had 90% of the Spanish population supporting this movement, they had over 800 evictions, including in the most impoverished neighborhoods. When the Popular Party rejected a petition of 1.4 million signatures to change the archaic mortgage law, they started squatting housing blocks owned by financial firms and giving them to evicted families. They um, managed to take successful strategic litigation before the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg and the European Court of Justice in Luxembourg. And they entered into direct negotiations with banks after occupying one of their offices or their empty houses. And as I said before, Edu Colau, their spokeswoman, became mayor of Barcelona, from where she runs now a worldwide hub of connected, fearless cities um, living together for one another. And this was the motto of the power movement, living together for one another. Why go on about this? I mean, at one level, this is quite simple, and it's all rather obvious. Um, it contains this particular instance of how to work, a lot of the obvious things to say about how to deal with enemy images, beginning with what conflict resolvers tell us about contact being essential. The most powerful way to get people to stop demonizing each other, as decades of research into racial prejudice has shown, is to introduce them to one another, that contact is important. And then there are other ideas of, about superseding the binary them and us enemy images by complicating the narrative. Um, that's something else that the conflict resolvers talk about, complicating the narrative. This is all very important for we journalists to think about, I think. And then a last feature of this kind of contact and its implications is that you are widening the lens. You come into the room, says the power activist, thinking you have an individual problem with your eviction and you go out of it realizing that you're part of a much wider picture. Okay, those are all obvious goods. 
But what I'd like to do for the rest of this talk, for the other half of this talk, is to put this image of what I think it's important to say is horizontal self-empowerment across borders and boundaries, alongside another notion of community, political community, which is what we're talking about tonight, that I've been thinking about a lot, and that is something I call the monocultural national us. This unitary will, um, called the people's will, in so many countries today, um, is being sort of relied on by people to insist that they are the real us. And this is often, I think, a community, that, and, and that the others then are, are, are the others. This is, uh, I think, a situation in which people in profoundly unequal societies only really feel that they're winning almost if someone else is losing out. So what then, if we think about it, can we just linger on this contrast for a moment, is the important point of contrast between power and this retreat to people like us. In particular, I'm thinking about how in country after country in Europe and elsewhere, under the leadership of nationalists and xenophobes, we can see the emergence of aggrieved majorities, encouraged by their political representatives to perceive themselves as the real people, the national us, unfairly victimized by some other. Let's say a few thousand migrants destitute on European shores whose arrival has triggered a major political crisis throughout the European Union. It seems as if only a few desperate migrants are required for an identity-forming image to construct this exacerbated or aggrieved majoritarianism. The real people routinely get the numbers and impact wildly wrong of this threat against them, as they do calculations, for example, about the proportions of Muslim people living in, in the UK or indeed living anywhere. These are sums and figures that people guess at and often get completely wrong. But it seems to me that this is all part of the essential feature of this type of identification. And this is the point that I really want to make, the contrast with the bar uh, uh, activity, is that this is a hyperbolic, aggrandizing identification. It's direct, in direct proportion, I would say, to the sense of weakness, political impotence, and humiliation of those who participate in its formation and need it in order to feel better. So the monocultural national us, let's just think of a few examples. It might be projected onto a strong leader. We all know the strong leaders, full of daring do, not to mention impunity, people who will break any and all rules that we might fear we might ourselves be constrained by. Or another version of the monocultural national us, uh, a, a very grim one, is the projected image of a lone wolf like Breivik in Norway, whose own sense of humiliation receives what it needs from the aggrandizing hyperbole involved in saving the nation from itself. Interestingly, in this case, by massacring a multiculturalism that is threatening the, the real people, the real people like himself. But the one that I really want to get onto, um, which I think, because I think it's quite easy to see the strong man, or indeed the exceptional lone wolf, as a proliferating machine for enemy images that is always en route to violence as something that we're not going to cave into, that we can somehow bypass, if we're lucky, if Boris Johnson doesn't take over the Tory party, that we might be able to avoid this. But um, what I think we are less able to think about, and that's what I think we have to start thinking about, is um, that in our liberal democracies, this aggrieved or exacerbated majoritarianism 
is arising in country after country under really quite sort of um, almost acceptable guises. So Brexit means Brexit, in which we're constantly told that the people's will stands. It's the people's will, it's the unitary will. It cannot be questioned. Um, this is an extraordinary phenomenon, but we don't see it as extraordinary. I mean, how can you go on and on saying Brexit means Brexit when nobody knows what Brexit means? <laughs> and, and, and it's so patently obvious that nobody does. And yet at the same time, Brexit means Brexit is saying we, the real people, know who we are. So you don't need to bother your little heads about that. These are very important uh, uh, identifications, and I think we have to think about how we counter those. And by the way, I'm going to say something terribly unpopular now. Um, I don't think this is just the leave side of this equation that's fallen into this national us, this monocultural national us. I'm afraid to say I think that the Remain campaigning side, and in a way almost particularly with the People's Vote, which says explicitly, let's stop Brexit through greater numbers, is a kind of mirror image in a sense. And the mirror images that they're coming up are with are one lack of openness to the other, and this is actually a capacity for enemy images. Two, sense of a national us under threat of imminent destruction from the other. Very strong. Three, lack of interest in diversity in their own ranks. There's one poor open democracy contributor who pointed out in the middle of this vast, never-ending Brexit debate, he said, I've never heard anyone speak up for those who think the EU is a terrible thing. But on balance, the UK should stay in for a little while longer and figure out the best course of action calmly, <laughs> says this poor guy. So in this type of majoritarianism, crucially, we hear very, very little about the respect for minorities that's always been held to be a litmus test for a healthy democracy. Much more about strength in numbers, reversing the 52-48 and all this sort of malarkey. But in the digital com communications era, that very fragmented era that leftists tend to mourn rather than try and understand and deal with, I want to argue that majoritarianism, the strength in numbers, is also a use of force, that it proliferates enemy images, and that it can only lead us close to violence, and that we need something else. So my point is that the path exercise, which became the 15M movement of the Indian Yardas, brought Edekalaj power, was that people in those horizontal movements of the squares learned to work across boundaries with the other and the other others to achieve what they could together without these hyperbolic identifications. Yes, they achieved a massive large-scale effect, of course it doesn't last forever and probably have to be built up again, but in the process, by comparison, all those people who were involved were cut down to size, returned to their own stature as human beings, but then raised into empowerment by working together. And this understanding of empowerment, the creation of transformational agency, it's what we once called people power, but need to adapt for our age, I believe is the main, if not the sole advantage that the left has today, over and above the much readier ballooning's of identification, which accompanies the emergence of neo-fascist real people all over the world, including in our midst. And I, I, mean, I must say that Bolsonaro, with his 55% of the vote, um, taking over Brazil with euphemistically described conservative policies, economic liberalism, and out-and-out -out violence, it's opportune to say that this is a question of defending democracy today and defending it in a situation where there is an outright that is willing to fight on an anti-politics ticket using predictive algorithms, psychometric messaging, and toxic polarization 
and their aim is to finish off democracy. Thank you. Thank you. So for the third session, uh, Jonathan, please, uh, if you can start from LSE. And then we're going to move to Andrea Pizarro from Oxford and then Chantal Mouffe, University of Westminster. Thanks. Okay, thank you. Is this on? Can you hear me? Good. Okay, thanks. I'll, I'll keep it fairly brief. Um, so, uh, of course, like others, I was thinking, how does one link these uh, uh, experiences of Brexit and migration, what one might consider common links, other than just treating them as somehow brute forms of xenophobia and the like. So I wanted to make some kind of link uh, to do with uh, political ideology, uh, political parties, and uh, failings thereof. Um, and I guess, I mean, to, to make a complex point in bold terms, I think one can probably, as a point of departure, say something about how in the last uh, few decades um, one might talk of a trend in public authority uh, away from the type of justifications that one associates with political parties on a 20th century model, that is, of setting normative priorities, um, ideological programs, and so on, and a move rather towards an image of, uh, of public authority that's closer to uh, the role of the manager and managerialism. I guess this is partly a story of uh, technocratic institutions and their increasing powers. It's also uh, partly a story of changes within political parties and um, uh, what some called hollowing of, of political parties. Now, uh, many things can go under that heading of a style of politics that moves away from the setting of normative priorities towards somehow adapting and managing uh, problems as they arise. I think one thing that one might emphasize, and it connects to something that uh, another panelist spoke of earlier under the heading of verification, is um, a move towards casting the business of public policy as sort of coping with the scarcely controllable with uh, almost quasi-natural forces. Now, of course, globalization is often analyzed in these terms, the discourse of globalization as the encounter of public authorities with something which has to be managed, controlled, but is essentially something approaching perhaps a force of nature, something that has to be coped with rather than that one might set priorities that uh, would be more deep-seated than that. So this notion of uh, coping with, as I say, quasi-natural forces, you see it in the economy, it's in the language of the economy, especially in a crisis period of economic storms, tsunamis, and so on, contagion, etc. This is all the language of uh, public policy as contending with natural forces. And of course, you see it in, in migration. Um, we heard a nice, interesting example of this Czech politician and the, the burning logs. Of course, this is uh, perhaps an extreme form of this type of uh, reification of what public policy is supposed to be doing. But I think it's also there in the much more banal forms of uh, uh, discourse closer to uh, the established centers of power. So when we talk about migration, we often talk about managing migration flows uh, and uh, many other sort of uh, metaphors of, uh, of liquids and so on. So um, how does this uh, connect to, to Brexit and, and migration? Well, I guess it, it's probably a short step from seeing 
the, uh, the activity of, of politics as needing to uh, manage things uh, and coping with things that are essentially uh, out there and can only be responded to rather than setting the agenda. I guess it's a short step from seeing the world in those terms to seeing the world as a world of threats um, and hence kind of the wider rise of a security paradigm. Again, the kind of well-documented feature of politics of the last few, uh, few decades. I think it goes with this sort of shift towards thinking about policy as something to be done in a managerial spirit rather than as responsive to political ideologies, um, political programs of parties. Um, it, of course, ties in with many recent historical events to do with terrorism and so on. There's a kind of some type of material basis for securitization frameworks, but they go clearly well beyond anything that one might see, treat as simply uh, uh, objective facts. Um, so this kind of way of thinking about public policy, of course, is easily am amplified from the right, from right-wing political parties uh, that can talk out of control forces into something closer to a crisis. In other words, upping the ante, upping the stakes. Uh, migration is out of control, and then all the more lurid language that one is still a kind of extension, I think, of uh, policy as dealing with quasi-natural forces, but of course can, can take a much more uh, lurid form than simply talking about migration flows as you find in European Commission documents. I'm talking about you know, tidal waves, inundations, all this kind of uh, uh, stuff. Now, um, I think once politics takes this turn, uh, things are already getting quite difficult. I guess those who are closer to established power may still feel that one can adopt this kind of managerial outlook on politics and maintain a certain type of uh, uh, well, technocratic order, I guess, um, even in spite of it. So, of course, the discourse of handling migration flows is often a quantified discourse, a discourse of setting targets, 100,000 <coughs> migrants and so on, getting targets down and so on. So one can certainly uh, take this kind of outlook and try and turn it into something which is the stuff of quantification of uh, uh, managerial techniques and so on. But I think it's always very hard to claim success as a manager. In other words, once public policy is done under this heading, um, it's never going to be easy for those uh, of established power, whether that's mainstream parties, whether it's technocratic institutions or so on, it's very hard to claim success under that heading. Um, there's a kind of, well, obviously there's a sort of accountant's frame when you start talking about setting targets and so on, targets are arbitrary and so on, they're very divorced from everyday life, I think that's another theme that came up in someone's uh, contribution mismatches between GDP and everyday experience and, and, and so on. And of course the, the other obvious link is that once one sees the, the business of public policy as contending with forces that are always on the verge of being out of control and clearly the message that is likely to have the most purchase under those conditions is going to be something about taking back control. It's going to be something about restoring uh, order to a world which is always teetering on the edge of being ungovernable. This, of course, I think, uh, then allows us to draw some kind of link between uh, uh, migration and Brexit as two expressions of an underlying phenomenon to do with a, uh, a way of doing public policy which is um, a managerial one responding to out-of-control forces which are then amplified by those who have every reason to turn this into a full-blown crisis 
and position themselves as those taking back control, those who are uh, able to assert themselves in those forces, to claim real agency. I mean, I'm, I'm hesitant to, to use the words populism, but if populism is uh, expressive of anything, then I think it's a expressive of a claim to, uh, to assert control under conditions where uh, many others are willing to disavow their capacity to control uh, or even to set normative priorities. I think uh, populism is something to do with uh, asserting volition, choice in uh, opposition to a politics of managing of necessity, essentially. The manager is someone who is contending, coping with things that have to be adapted to coping with necessity. Well, we've already heard some of the problems that come with this dehumanization, of course. To talk about human subjects in these terms is clearly, in the case of the uh, Czech figure that we heard about, a way of turning living people into, uh, again, forces of nature, things that simply do what they do. You can't really ask questions about why people move, why migration happens, if you are intending to treat this as a question of natural flows of forces of nature and so on. Natural forces simply act out their nature. There is no motivation to be inquired into. So once I think you see this way of uh, engaging with the problem, then you have uh, deactivated a whole set of questions to do with understanding motivations, the purposes and so on that might be in play and that probably are essential to thinking about how to contend with these uh, questions. Um, obviously, another very familiar theme, whenever you start securitizing public problems in this way, it becomes a license to very uh, draconian measures, so hostile environment and so on. Of course, hostile environment already, I think, is an extension of this type of theme of thinking about public policy as dealing with quasi-natural forces. A hostile environment is exactly about uh, creating an environment for something that is uh, uh, simply expressing its uh, its uh, intentionality, and one can only change environmental conditions. Um, okay, I should stop there. Uh, that's that's it. Uh, we can talk more later. Thank you, Jonathan. And there. Yes, okay. So thanks so much for being still here. Uh, I'm a researcher in neuroscience at University of Oxford and I study how humans make decisions and particularly how the social context shapes uh, behavior, uh, being us more cooperative, competitive, uh, motivated, apathetic, and I'm here to try to fight my apathy and to try to change the social context around us because it's quite horrible to me. And uh, um, so I'm here also therefore as a political activist and I I think Katerina told me to be academic, but I would rather be political. And I asked her to add uh, the N25 UK there, so to try to say something political as well. So I'll try to be both in this debate and uh, convince you that we need to understand a little bit of neuroscience to understand what's going on uh, in Europe, and also try to say what the N25 is trying to do and how it could be helpful to shape the debate in Europe. And by, I really can start without Pay my tribute to Katerina, who has organized this time series of events, this time, this series of events, uh, which um, we were together in Paris a few months ago, uh, where she was discussing her PhD dissertation, where it traced back the history of the political philosophy of the roots of the concept of political space, 
And I think there is a no more timely work that we should discuss in Europe. So thank you so much, Katrina, for that work and also to organize these events. This is the fifth. She's spending her free time to organize these events and she's going tomorrow to Oxford and then to Italy and then to France and then to Germany. So she's doing a lot of work and we really need things like this. But uh, another little bit of introduction is that I cannot talk about Brexit and migration without mentioning that I'm, I migrated to the UK uh, to come to study in this very university a long time ago. And I can uh, still think of my PhD supervisor telling me not to spend too much time in political activism and to focus on experiments. I don't listen to him, I didn't listen to him, but perhaps he could be proud of myself trying to combine these two today. And what I try to, uh, the point I want to raise is that a political space, a European political space also, is effectively a cognitive space. It exists in our minds and brains before existing in a geographical sense. And, uh, um, and it exists to the extent to which it is represented uh, in the brains of the political actors who are inhabiting that space, who act in the space. And by political actors, I don't mean just politicians. I mean everyone who tried to change a little bit of the world. So citizens, activists, uh, uh, journalists, anyone that does something that wants to change the structure of power in that space. And uh, of course, the problem we are facing is that um, we probably, most people in Europe, don't have a representation of European political space in their brains and minds. And we will not be able to transform the structure of power unless we build up these representations. Um, and so how do we go about to create such representation? How do we make this space populating in the brain of people? Um, so just want to convey a recent study in social neuroscience suggests that the human brain tracks uh, social space in the same structure with, to which it tracks movement in space. So there is this region of the brain, which is the hippocampus, which is crucial to form spatial memories and to navigate in physical space who also appear to be relevant to represent the social space. And uh, the lesson we learned from this study is that probably uh, social space uh, uh, can also be a proxy of political space in a, in a, in a way. And uh, therefore, the intuition is that our internal representation of political space obeys the same rules and it is, it is represented in, the same, in a similar way to the social space and uh, that political actors are occupying our mind in the same way that uh, our uh, friends are. And uh, so the, the, the real point is to, to, to build a European political space is to create these political actors capable of occupying our neural arena, so to speak. Now, if I ask you to think about who is, do you think is occupying the European political space, I don't know what would you think of. I, uh, maybe some of you would think of Angela Merkel. I personally would think of Yanis Varoufakis. I hope many of you have heard of him and uh, I would like to convey that you should uh, uh, look him up on Facebook or uh, somewhere and uh, see what he's saying. Um, and then an observation. As we only have one hippocampus, uh, if it is occupied by the uh, European political space, uh, that's fine. But if it's occupied by the national political space, we won't think about the European one. So we can do both, but not at the same time, and we need to try to think what we need to want to think about. Um, and another lesson from psychology that I want to talk about is relevant, um, it's very similar to what Nicola was saying earlier, and it's about framing. Uh, so framing questions in different way uh, generate catastrophic difference uh, in the outcome. So for instance, in May there was a survey asking the British people whether they wanted a public vote on the final Brexit deal. And those who didn't want it uh, outnumbered the others 45, 39. 
but when the expression final say was used instead, so moving the emphasis from the public dimension of the vote to the personal ability to have a say in it, then the result was flipped and uh, 44 against 36 were in favor. So this thing applies also, of course, to uh, the referendum question. And uh, now one of the reasons Brexit has won, and uh, probably somebody has mentioned that earlier, is that uh, Brexit was the only change on offer at the referendum, uh, a change without specifics, specifics attached, but uh, with no clear mandate. But nevertheless, everyone dissatisfied could see in the leave vote the breakthrough he was seeking. And uh, at, the, at the time in which many people were dissatisfied with the, the way the, the, the system was run. And so uh, this is why Brexit has won. This is also why I think Brexit will fail, because there is no majority for any specific form of Brexit. Everyone is seeking a different Brexit. Um, and then a couple of questions. Uh, framing is important also to shape the narrative in a country. So if I tell you that the UK hosts the, the largest number of foreign-born EU citizens in Europe, do you think there is too many EU citizens in the country? Perhaps you would respond yes, because it's the uh, largest in Europe. But if I tell you that the, the fiscal impact of immigration in the UK is more positive compared to all the other rich countries in the world, then perhaps you would be inclined to say that more should come. So really the framing matters. And uh, regarding framing, we should be wary. Those of us that think that a second referendum should happen is that referendum questions are decided by the government. And if this government decides the question of the referendum, I don't know how they're going to frame it, but not certainly in a progressive and pro-European way. And uh, I have a question for you. How many, uh, two minutes, yeah, uh, that's enough. Uh, how many European citizens live in this country? Who, who want to respond? Do you know? Oh, no. Okay. Does anyone know? No. Three. Three? No, there is 63 millions. Is UK citizens in this country are European citizens uh, for the time being, and I hope for a longer time. <laughs> so what is DN trying to do with, uh, in the current uh, uh, European political space? So uh, we set ourselves from the beginning to act directly at the European uh, dimension, trying to choose that as the background of our political action. And this is why all members of our organization uh, vote on every uh, so we think that Brexit is a European problem, but also the Italian government is a European problem. And uh, I can vote about the Italian, uh, what to do in Italy, and uh, the Italian members can vote about what to do here. So in, in the UK, obviously, we don't want to go against the only successful left in Europe. So the Labour Party, uh, we think it's inspiring in many ways. And what we are trying to do is to try to change the narrative around Brexit. And we are working both with Remain and Lever to try to reframe the terms of the debate. Uh, building uh, a democratic discussion at the grassroots level. And we want to ask what sort of relationship Britain should have with Europe, because there has to be a relationship, even if we leave, even if there is a disruption. We need to think about that. And we want to take back control, which for us means democratic control, so people should decide what happens. Uh, but we are not seeking to fight against the democratic outcome of the referendum. In fact, we want to democratize it. And we wish the citizens of the UK to have a voice on the negotiation and on the future of the continent. Uh, and this is why uh, Lorenzo, who is, a, is not there anymore, but he's a member of DiEM, also was suggesting that we should have a, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> suggesting we should have a, 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 some sort of campaign for the European elections in Britain. Uh, but this is also why in the next few days, the N25 will bring about a campaign which will try to change the conversation around Europe in this country. 
we will launch it together with a group of citizens uh, of Euro European and non-UK citizens in the, in the UK, with a group of UK citizens in the EU, uh, with a young, European, uh, young UK citizens, because I think uh, it was said by Zatinder before that uh, we need to link migrants to social change. What's, what's the best way than uh, asking migrants to talk about social uh, change? So um, we strongly believe that uh, young people and uh, EU citizens who live in a different European country can be a major force of change, and their democratic voice can help shape a different kind of debate. Uh, so I think my time is uh, off, so I just want to say this. Please act as European citizens in your daily life, defend your European citizenship rights, and when you hear about our campaign, join us in our democratic revolution. I'll just stand with the name of the campaign. Take a break from Brexit. Thanks, Andrea Chantal. Well, when I asked to speak the last one, I never imagined that it was going to be so late. Because we were asked to make short presentation, which apparently not everybody uh, understood. Uh, but we seem to have all survived. Uh, <laughs> like, incredible. Um, well, I'm not going to speak about Brexit. Uh, I want to speak about the problem of the migration and the left. In fact, in a sense, it has got to do with the question that Marina was asking at the beginning. What is it to be progressive, progressive with respect to migration? So it's, it's th this kind of question that I want to, to, uh, to raise because I think that it's, uh, this at the moment in Europe, in, in, I'm not going to speak from the point of view of Britain only, but I think for the European left, uh, and I mean, not only European, in, in America you also have got the same, uh, the, the US, uh, the same kind of question. But, um, and what I want to argue is that we need to ask that question from a political and not from a moral point of view. Uh, but it doesn't mean that, you know, this is not only a part of it, but as uh, Max Weber has uh, taught us, in politics we need to articulate and join the um, political conviction with the political responsibility, you know. And I think that, uh, unfortunately, in many of the, the debates in which the way is posed by the left is the political conviction is dominant and the political responsibility is, is left aside. I am here referring to what I think is a completely false debate, of a debate which unfortunately uh, is raging at the moment in France, and is to divide people about the pro or against immigration. I think it's a total uh, a false question because migration is a fact not something that you be in favor or, or against. It's a fact, and of course you can ask a series of questions with respect to that, but it's not something that you need to take a stand for or against. I think we, there is a danger there because clearly this is, for instance, what some kind of populists like Salvini are trying to force us. And I think it's a right-wing populist who are trying to force us into this trap. You know, Either you are uh, uh, against uh, um, or for. And I, I think that's a very, very false question. Um, I'm, I'm referring to this um, debate in France, which I, I think has created an absolutely horrible atmosphere. Um, and it has linked, in fact, to the fact that there's been, uh, um, um, there is a manifest which has been published by uh, originally three, three newspapers, uh, Mediapart, uh, Politis, and, and Regard, uh, manifest for the, 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 the migrants, okay. And um, they are basically uh, saying there 
that um, in the same way as capital is moving without limitation, so it should be accompanied also by the free limit, uh, movement of, of people. Uh, and they are, in fact, it's their position is very similar, if not exactly, uh, uh, put in the term of the no border movement. No? So I think any kind of border is something which necessarily is uh, 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 reactionary, fascistic, and, and all, all that you want. Um, and, and so the, the argument is different according to different people. For instance, as I've just said, one is to say, well, capital move freely, so it does to do the same for, for uh, uh, labor. Another one is kind of an anthropological argument saying it's normal for people to move. So in terms of the freedom, uh, people should be able to move again you know, without any, any kind of restriction. And what I think uh, uh, problematic is that they are in fact, uh, and, and it's taking place at the moment, using that is in a very you know, uh, intolerant way. For instance, people are asked, if you sign the manifest or not? And, uh, and why haven't you signed the manifest? So it, it is no, no some kind of things in, in, in which, you know, if you have not signed the manifest, and so say it's of people, you know, say, well, no, I know I don't have, because I think, for instance, one of the uh, questions which have been raised is that in that manifest there is absolutely nothing criticizing, for instance, the politics of Macron, you know, and it is some kind of uh, injunction. And in fact, uh, uh, clearly what uh, uh, is the intention of this manifest is, is to attack uh, La France Insoumise, because they uh, believe that La France Insoumise is uh, posing the question in a way which they take to be anti-immigration. And in fact, there is also probably, I don't know if it has reached uh, Britain, because I was not here recently, so I don't, I've not read the uh, British press, but uh, if you heard about the movement of stay, of stay in, in, in Germany, you know, uh, by, by Sarah Wangenreich, and in France, they've been all over the press saying something, ah, there is a, no, a, a left anti-immigration, you know? There is, in fact, absolutely nothing in the manifest of post and I'm not saying that I'm taking, I'm in favor of that, you know, but I'm, I think we need to be a, a bit more uh, impartial in this case. And there is absolutely nothing which is anti-immigration about that. For instance, uh, Sarah Wangenreich, which is the one we have written the manifest with the series of people from the Linker, is, absolutely insisting that you know they one need to, to uh, respect absolutely the right of the uh, uh, political refugees but she raised a series of questions concerning for instance the may, maybe you know uh, immigration can cause some problems and we should to try to Please examine them, but according to the manifest, you should not, you know, no, you are definitively in favor of immigration and, it's, and any kind of question with respect to that. For instance, one of the critiques they made to La France Insoumise, that La France Insoumise is saying, well, you know, maybe we should also ask if we could not do something for those countries, and we should also accompany uh, our politics with uh, uh, things to develop those countries and automatically, ah no, but in that case what we are trying to do is to impede, you know, immigration. I think the problem there, and, and this is what I want to, to, to raise here, putting this question in that way impede us to ask a series of questions which I think are absolutely crucial for the left in Europe. Uh, and it is because Obviously, you know, they are a migration which are not forced migration, but we should also acknowledge that they are forced migration. And what is our responsibility 
with the West in creating those conditions. I mean, we, all of us, I suppose, already will agree that uh, the political refugees uh, are in great part the consequence of the politics of the, of the West, you know, uh, Bush uh, and um, Tony Blair invasion of Iraq, obviously. You know, in, in fact, we are still today living the consequence of, of that. And I think it, but on that, I suppose there is some kind of recognition. But there is another question which for me is particularly important, especially when we are going to uh, uh, design a, a LEV program, is a critique of free trade. Because uh, many of the problems which are, in fact, uh, uh, taking place today are a consequence of free trade. And I'm, in a sense, very surprised that except for some anti-globalization movement, it seems, you know, something which is in agreement among the people of the left, no, free trade is something good. Free trade is not something good. Free trade is something bad for us, and it's bad also for the, bad for the countries which, you know, the, for instance, uh, is, is consequence of free trade in Africa have been absolutely disastrous. And I have an experience, for example, I remember the first time I went to Senegal, I was really shocked to hear that people were saying, we used to have a very uh, striving uh, uh, production of onions, completely destroyed because now we import uh, frozen onion from uh, Holland. Yesterday I was reading an article in which they were uh, explaining that, uh, I didn't know that by the way, Italian here might know it, there is the, the production of uh, tomatoes in, uh, uh, in, uh, in uh, Italy is enormous. And they are uh, uh, also exporting to Africa a lot of, 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 of tomatoes. And the consequence of that is that that production of tomatoes in many uh, uh, African countries, which also was important, was a place in which people could find work, had been completely destroyed. So what I think we need to understand is that, and since we are here concerned also with Europe, the recognize that the European agricultural policy is something which has been having disastrous consequences for those, those countries. I mean, and also, in fact, for, for us, because this production is not completely uh, dominated by agribusiness, because in fact, it's not the small peasant in France who are uh, receiving the, the subsidies. It's agribusiness in order to develop exportation, and exportation de then destroy the, the, the vernacular industries there, production there, and of course, people are left without uh, any way in which they can find work. And then, of course, they want to come here, and when they arrive, they say, oh, no, 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 we don't want you. you know? So I think there is a very, very perverse thing which is uh, at play there. Uh, and this is something that we absolutely need to put into question. And if we start from this uh, position, I know we cannot really uh, um, put any kind of question about re, uh, the, the possibilities of finding ways in which maybe people who want to stay in their countries will be able to do it. Because of course there are always people who will want to, to uh, uh, move. But they are people who would be much happier if they could stay. And the, there is this question of forced migration. And I think that, in fact, by uh, putting the question in purely moral terms, we are not able to ask those very important questions. And this question, in fact, goes even towards much more 
than the question of the agricultural uh, European policy. It has got to do with our own model of development. And I think this is why the, all the question of ecology is absolutely central for a left project. Because we can't possibly go on with this kind of productivist model that has been dominant in Europe. And in fact, you know, we must realize that our uh, uh, prosperity is being done on, on the basis of exploiting many other countries. And I think that the situation is not to say, no, okay, then, then you know, we destroy your economy, but you can come here. Because this is the kind of you know, uh, position, the moral one. No, I think we really need to ask, in what way are we responsible for the things which are happening there? And what can we do in, the, in, in order to you know, stop that? In, uh, not, I mean, not stop immigration, but stop you know, the, con the condition which are, which we are imposing on those countries. And I think that, for instance, this is precisely what La France Insoumise is trying to do. And this is for that reason that you got all those moralistic things. Ah, no, you can't ask questions about you know, migration because by asking that, you're automatically taking an anti-migration position. This is why I think that if we are going to pose the question of migration from a left one, we need to do it in a way which is not in this kind of, you are either for or against immigration. Thanks a lot, Chantal.